The following sermon, entitled The Righteous Judgment of God, was preached on the morning of July 31st, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we will read the first 16 verses, and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Romans 2. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek the glory, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of Romans 2 and many other passages of Scripture that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring of him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in His just judgment temporally and eternally 
as yet declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul. We are sinners. We are to blame for our sinfulness. And so what does that mean for us? That in a nutshell is the progression of the Heidelberg Catechism within this first section of the Catechism. You remember, the Catechism is divided into three parts. And we're in that first part, spanning Lord's Days 2-4, through four, which sets before us the knowledge of how great my sin and misery is. Lord's Day 2 taught us we are sinners. For Lord's Day 2 told us about God's law as the standard for righteousness, and we saw very clearly that we fall short of that standard. Therefore, we are sinners. Lord's Day 3 taught us we are to blame for our sinfulness. Because God made us good. God created man after His own image. And therefore, God is not to blame for our sinfulness, our depravity. We are to blame. It has its source in the fall of Adam. So if we're sinners, and we're to blame for that sinfulness, what does that mean for us? What are the implications of that? And that's what Lord's Day 4 treats. And that Lord's Day 4 focuses on the, the effects of sin, the, the result of sin, the consequences of sin, and that the main point of Lord's Day 4 is all about the punishment that we deserve on account of our sins. And thus, this morning we come to a rather unpopular topic. The wicked world, and sadly much of the church world, does not want to hear the message of this Lord's Day and of this sermon. The wicked world and the nominal church world view this doctrine as something that's cruel, something that seems all wrong to them, and therefore they go about denying the truths that are going to be on the foreground in this sermon. And they go so far as to attack those who still maintain these doctrines. But though this is an unpopular topic, it's necessary. And it's necessary even for us to hear because there might be a part of us even that recoils at talking about the the punishment of sin so that even a part of us is uncomfortable when we hear a sermon on this topic. But though it's unpopular, it's necessary. And it's necessary because, very plainly, this is a part of God's revelation to us. He tells us in no uncertain terms, as we will see, that as the just judge, He is the one who punishes sin. And if it's a part of His revelation to us, therefore it's something we need to know. It's something we need to hear sermons on from time to time. But more than that, such a sermon is necessary 
Because we need to know this if we are ever going to live and die happily. Not that the knowledge of the punishment of sin itself is what brings us happiness and comfort, but we need to know the depths of our misery, what we deserve for our sin, if we will truly appreciate the wonders of our salvation and the deliverance that we have in Christ. And so it's with that in mind that we consider God's righteous, the righteous judgment of God upon sin. We use that as our theme, the righteous judgment of God. And we're taking that language right from Romans 2, verse 5, which speaks of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And this morning we're going to have two points only. First, we're going to look at God's righteous judgment of the wicked, the unbeliever, and then God's righteous judgment of the righteous of His saints. So we begin with the wicked. And the clear testimony of Scripture is that God punishes sin. That's the main truth here in this Lord's Day. It comes out from the language in question and answer 10. Answer 10, that God will punish them in His judgment. Also in Answer 11, we read that therefore His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished. God punishes sin. And for the catechism to teach this is to draw from the whole of Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, we read, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And the idea of God's curse there is His word of wrath. It's talking about some consequence for sin. We see the same thing in Psalm 5. Verses 5 and 6 speak of the wicked saying, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. God punishes sin. And that's a part of what we read in Romans 2. Romans 2 verse 6, for example, tells us that God will render to every man according to his deeds. And then it goes on to specify what God will render to the wicked for their sinfulness. Verse 8 tells us, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, and now mentally insert, God will render indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Saying loud and clear, God will punish the evildoer. So we've seen this truth from Scripture. Now let's unpack it a little bit. So notice who's doing this punishing. It's God. And he does this as the Almighty Creator. The One who created every rational moral creature. That is, every man and angel. And as the One who created man, He's the One who is the lawgiver. He decides how we are supposed to live. And He in turn is also the judge who exercises judgment upon those who disobey Him. And when we sin... We sin against Him. That was David's testimony in Psalm 51, verse 4, against Thee and Thee only have I sinned. So it's because when we sin, we're provoking, we're offending God 
that He's the one who carries out this punishment. So what does it mean to punish? Well, a punishment is very simply to punish someone is to inflict some sort of penalty on another as retribution for some offense, for some crime. And the the punishment for sin, the penalty that God inflicts is death. That's Romans 6, verse 23. The, The wages of sin is death. Or to put it in different terms, God punishes us in and with and by His wrath. That was the the language in Romans 2, verse 8 of what God is going to render to the ungodly. His indignation, His wrath, tribulation, and anguish. And God sends this penalty upon the wicked unbeliever. That's who we're focused on in this first point. Upon those who are described in Romans 2, verse 8 as those who are contentious, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And more specifically, we're talking about the man who's hardened in these sins, who's impenitent in these sins. And we say that in light of Romans 2, verse 5. But, at, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, we're talking about someone who persists in these sins, who refuses to believe in Jesus Christ, who has rejected Him outright. That's the man who's going to be punished for these sins. He's going to be punished both in his body and in his soul as the catechism speaks at the end of question and answer 11. Both are punished because both are involved in sin. The, the soul is the author of the sin. The, the body is the instrument of sin. and Therefore, both receive this penalty. So God punishes the wicked unbeliever. Now we need to add when. When does this happen? This punishment begins already in this life. And that God visits them with all manner of afflictions and hardships. Whether those are the ones that are common to men, such as sickness and reproach, oppression, war, whether they're peculiar to the wicked. Includes the the sting of a, a guilty conscience. Recognizing that I'm not right with God. That's part of God's punishment that He visits upon them already in this life. But though the punishment begins in this life, Scripture makes clear that there's a a greater punishment awaiting them. And we say that in light of, again, the language we find here in Romans chapter 2. For example, in verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. Scripture tells us that there's a day of wrath awaiting the wicked. And this day of wrath is the final judgment. After Christ comes again and as judge condemns the wicked. That is, on that day of wrath, Jesus Christ will issue a a verdict guilty on account of your own sins and then He'll sentence them to a corresponding punishment. namely, Namely, everlasting destruction. So that on the day of wrath, that day is really the beginning of their everlasting state. God punishes sin. That's the truth on the foreground here. Does that make you tremble? 
as you consider what each of us deserves on account of our sinfulness. You see, there's a reason why the wicked world and much of the church world wants nothing to do with this part of God's revelation in His Word. They do not want to hear it. Because the reality is for those who are outside of Christ, this is a truly terrifying prospect. That's why man does everything he can to suppress the knowledge of this judgment that awaits him. Whether it's by denying this outright, or whether it's by making a big joke about it, oh, it won't be that bad. Man seeks to suppress this knowledge. But the reality is that there's no escaping it. Because God will indeed punish the wicked and He will do so in His justice, in His righteousness. And that's what we want to see is that too is a part of this Lord's Day and a part of this passage of Scripture. We've considered the the judgment itself from a general point of view. Now we want to focus on the the justice, the, the righteousness of that judgment. And that too is a part of the catechism. For example, in question 10, we read of His just judgment. Question answer 11 speaks of the fact that His justice requires that sin be punished. And again, the catechism is very clearly drawing from Scripture. Romans 2 emphasizes God's justice, His rightness in punishing sin. That was mentioned already back in verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's in harmony with reality. We see this in verse 5. In the language that we're using for the theme of the sermon. The end of verse 5 says that in that day of wrath, God's going to reveal the righteous judgment of God. It's a, it's a righteous judgment. It's a fair judgment. And that's true because of what we read in verse 6, that God will render to every man according to his deeds. He's going to receive something that is appropriate in harmony with what he deserves. And that's true also because of what we read in verses 10 and 11 that in this judgment, God is no respecter of persons. He's not going to defer to one class of people over against another because they have a certain ethnicity. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. God does not respect persons. He will judge us according to our deeds. So God is just. And now there's really two things that are that come out of all this. There's the the justice and righteousness of God Himself, and there's the justice, the righteousness of the punishment. On the one hand, we have in this Lord's Day and in this passage that we've been drawing from, the justice of God Himself. God is a just God. That means very simply that everything that He does is right. God can never be accused of any sort of wrongdoing or of ever being unfair. And that justice applies to His work as judge. The whole idea of a just judge is that He he punishes sin as He he should. That He doesn't let criminals get away with it. So it is for God. His justice really requires that sin be punished. That's the language of answer 11. Therefore, His justice requires that sin be punished. 
punished. And that's why we have the explanation, the question and answer that we do before that. Question 10 asks, will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And the idea of the question is, well, could He just let this slide? Could He just sort of sweep it under the rug and say, it's no big deal. I'll give you a free pass here. And the answer is no. Exactly because He's a just God. It belongs to the very definition of being just that sin is punished. And thus for God to just sweep it under the rug would be for Him to deny His justice and then ultimately to deny Himself as God. So the justice of God Himself demands, requires that wrongdoing be punished. But not only is God Himself just, the punishment He meets out is just. That is, it, it's fair. It's in harmony with what we deserve. It's appropriate on account of man's sinfulness. Both God and His judgment is just and righteous. And that truth stands over against all of the different objections that have been raised to this doctrine as an attempt to try to get out of this punishment. There have indeed been many objections. One objection is, but God is being unfair in punishing us for something that we cannot do. That's really the idea of question 9 of the Catechism. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring of him in his law that which he cannot perform? And now this is drawing from the previous Lord's Day which taught us clearly, well, fallen man is incapable of doing any good and is wholly inclined to all evil. Well, the questioner then reasons, if that's true, if man's incapable, and God's going to punish us for something we cannot do, that that means He's not being fair. This isn't right. This is not just. This would be like punishing a, a cow because it cannot fly. This is like punishing a fish because it, it can't walk around on land. I'm not able, and therefore, how could He punish me for something that I'm not able to do? Well, the catechism has an answer for us. Is God doing injustice in this? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself of all his posterity and of those divine gifts. It's saying, God made man capable. He gave him the gifts, the endowments to keep his law, and man of his own volition willingly gave up that ability. He forfeited those excellent gifts. And therefore, God is just in still punishing man for his sin. To use an illustration, if a business owner were to hand over his business to some manager. The business is in good working order. And he, he trains the manager well. He gives this manager everything he needs to run the business. But then says, I'm going to take a certain percentage of the profit. 
Well, if that business manager disregards all the training and willfully drives that business into ruin, into bankruptcy, the owner would be perfectly just in saying, where's that money that I expected? He'd be perfectly just in taking that man to court and seeking justice. Well, so it is with our God. He he gave to man the ability and man threw away the inability and therefore He's just in punishing man for his sin. Then another objection is raised. But that was Adam. I did not forfeit those excellent gifts. That, That was him. How does this apply to me? Well, the answer here is the whole truth of the headship of Adam. That he was our representative head. And let's recognize this is not a foreign idea. This is not just totally out there that the decision of a head and representative is going to affect all those who are under him. If the government of the United States, if the President of the United States were to declare we are at war with another nation, well, whether we like it or not, we are now at war with that other nation because that's the whole idea of a head. That's the whole idea of a representative. And what is more, this objection is groundless because there is no wicked unbeliever out there saying, I sure wish I had peace with this God. But because of Adam, I'm not able to have peace. No. All those who are fallen in Adam, all those who are who persist in their rebellion and unbelief are willful in that. They are willful enemies of the Most High God. Well, if those objections don't work, then the objector changes tactics and objects still a different way and says, but is not God merciful? That's the idea of the question. That's the exact question being asked in question 11. Is not God then also merciful? And the idea is, well, we know God is merciful, so how can He punish sin? These things seem incompatible with each other. And this is really the perspective of much of the broader church world. The broader church world wants to so emphasize God's mercy, His love, so as to say that His, His love sort of overrides His justice. It's the, the trump card. Love wins, they tell us. And therefore, there cannot be such a thing as hell. There cannot be such a punishment for sin. But again, there's an answer. And we have that answer in answer 11. God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Saying God's justice and His mercy, they go together. He doesn't exercise the one at the expense of the other. The, The exercising of the other doesn't do some sort of violence to the One. But His justice and His mercy are in perfect harmony with each other. All of God's attributes are one in Him. So while He is indeed merciful, He is just at the same time. And because He's just, He is going to punish sin. 
Then one last objection is raised, which says this punishment is too much. It's too extreme. It's not fair. This is cruel and unusual punishment for God to punish one everlastingly, both body and soul. And the answer here is we have to remember whom we sin against. Catechism has appropriate language when in answer 11 it tells us, therefore His justice requires that sin which is committed... Now it doesn't just say against God or against Him, but against the Most High Majesty of God. And that's relevant because as Ursinus says in his commentary, quote, every crime is great and deserving of punishment in proportion to the majesty of Him against whom it is committed. End quote. What Ursinus in the Catechism is getting at is that because we sin against an infinite God, the God of heaven and earth, Therefore, we deserve an infinite punishment. It's not too harsh or too severe. So the reality is that whatever objections might be raised against God's justice, they all fall to the ground. He is just. He's righteous. And the reality is that we should recognize that as a good thing. This is part of what makes God praiseworthy. For Scripture everywhere, when it talks about the justice of our God, it, it praises God for His justice. Some of the Psalter numbers that we're singing today are doing just that. We're praising God for His righteousness in His judgment. The reality is that if the opposite were true, if that He was unjust, if He let sin go unpunished, that would be a bad thing. And we see that in Scripture. There are many Scripture passages which are really expressions of the people being oppressed crying out for justice. And we see this even in the world around us. In the state of California, there have been efforts to recall two different district attorneys. Why? Because of a lack of justice. Criminals getting off freer with Nothing more than a slap on the wrist and people are outraged by this. Because even the wicked world recognizes the need for justice. And we can all see that too. If we were the ones who had a loved one murdered and the judge just let the murderer go even though there's clear, undeniable evidence this man did it we would be outraged if there was no punishment, if there was no justice. Well, that applies to our God. His justice is a good thing. It's a part of what makes Him beautiful. It's a part of what makes Him lovely. Because He does not allow the sinner, the rebel, who shakes His fist at Him to get away with it. It does indeed punish sin. Now from the perspective of the child of God, 
sometimes we wonder about this, don't we? Because when we look at the world around us, it sure seems like the wicked are getting away with their sin. In light of what we've learned this morning, God is a just God who will certainly punish sin. We, we would have to expect that when the wicked blaspheme God, when they attack His church, that, that God would send a, a thunderbolt and just strike them down dead right there. But it doesn't happen. And we wonder, are they getting away with it? Worse, it, everything seems to go well for the wicked. They're the ones who prosper. So we begin to wonder, is God really just in His judgment? Are the wicked just getting away with it? And the answer is emphatically no. No, the wicked are not getting away with their sinfulness. Instead, what we see in this is the forbearance of our God. God's forbearance that's mentioned here in this passage in Romans 2, verse 4. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? God's forbearance toward the wicked is that he does not punish them immediately with the full expression of his wrath against their sin. God's forbearance is that in spite of their sin, he does still continue to send sunshine and rain upon them so that from an earthly point of view, many of them even seem to prosper. But that does not mean they are getting away with their sin. God will indeed punish the wicked unbeliever for their sinfulness. And that's what stands out in verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. It's saying, really what's happening is that the wicked are accumulating a debt and therefore just accumulating a greater punishment. They're treasuring up. They're storing up wrath. That is, the punishment that's going to come upon them is going to be all the greater because they were allowed to continue so long in their sin and in their unbelief. And what that makes clear is that when God does forbear with the wicked, it's not because of some gracious, favorable attitude toward them. Because the reality is that it means their judgment will only be all the greater. God will punish the wicked unbeliever for their sin. And for the church who is persecuted, for the church who is sensitive to the honor and the glory of the name of our God and who hates to see it blasphemed, there is comfort in this knowing the justice and the righteousness of God. That's the righteous judgment of God concerning the wicked. But now we have to see how this applies to us. His saints. And that question does need to be wrestled with because as the Catechism has taught us, as we were reminded when we heard the law this morning, every one of us is a sinner. By nature, we are no different 
than the wicked world around us. And thus we too deserve the same punishment for our sin. Every one of us must confess, I deserve for God to render to me indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. I deserve extreme, that is, everlasting punishment both of body and of soul. So what are we to do? We must look to Christ. Because the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ took that punishment that we deserve for our sins. Now I know you have heard that said hundreds of times from this pulpit. But do not let our familiarity with the fact that Jesus Christ took our punishment make it any less astonishing. Meditate on that for a moment. Jesus Christ took our sins upon Him and thus He suffered the wrath of God in His life. We were the ones storing up, treasuring up wrath as it were, by committing all these sins, accumulating an ever-increasing debt, and we're still accumulating it. But the whole of it, all that we've stored up, all that we ever will treasure up, the whole of it was placed upon Christ. And He bore it. He carried it. And He suffered the whole of His life for it. God's wrath was upon Him. Every moment of every day of His entire life. But even then, for Jesus Christ, there was still a day of wrath. It was the day that He was condemned. Declared guilty. And sentenced to the death of the cross where God rendered to Him indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. Jesus Christ suffered the agonies, the torments of hell itself as He hung there upon the cross. Why? To deliver us who deserve that punishment. He took the punishment for us. So that's in Jesus Christ we see that God is indeed both just and merciful at the same time. It's a testimony of Scripture. Psalm 85, verse 10 says about God, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God's righteousness, His justice, and His mercy meet. They, they kiss and that happens most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. So that if you want to see either of these attributes of our God, whether it's His justice or His righteousness, and you want to see them on full display 
You look at the cross. It's at the cross we see God's justice. Yes, we see it in the punishment of the wicked. That's a revelation of His justice. But the clearest picture of it comes when we stand at the foot of Calvary and we see the severity of His justice. And that in order to deliver us from our sins, He punished His only begotten Son. It's one thing to punish a man. It's one thing to punish an angel. It's one thing to put a punishment upon the whole of the creation. It's something altogether different for God to punish His own Son. The One who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The One who is beloved of the Father from all eternity. It was Him. The Son of God who went to the cross with the earth quaking beneath Him as though unable to bear His weight. With the heavens above Him blackened as though deaf to His cry. And Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth as though rejected by both. If you want to see God's justice, if you want to know what sin deserves, you look at the cross. But it's not only His justice we see there. It's His mercy. And that He gave one to take our place. God's mercy is not that He sweeps our sins under the rug. His mercy is not that He turns a blind eye and just sort of winks at it and says, it's okay. But His mercy is that He, he provides a substitute. One who went to the cross for us on our behalf in our place as our representative to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That's God's mercy. So that when God looks upon us, He sees us as those who are righteous, who have had all of our sins paid for. The debt has been paid in full. So that we might now be accepted of Him on the basis of Christ's atoning death. So that we who were in our sin and misery are lifted up out of that. And not only lifted up out of it, but made the object of His love, His favor, of His blessedness, so that He now heaps upon us the riches of salvation that Christ earned for us at the cross. Do you see how wonderful it is? That Jesus Christ took the punishment we deserve. You've heard it a hundred times. Let us never cease to be astonished by it. Especially because of what it means for us. It means we need not fear suffering eternal judgment for our sins. 
And I wonder if we truly appreciate how amazing that is. To use a dim but very real illustration, you can think of those people in Ukraine. One of the messages they have tried to send to the world in general is, you have no idea what it's like to live under the constant threat of air raids and bombings. You have no idea how terrifying it is to wake up each day wondering, is this going to be the last day? And in response, I say, you're right, I have no idea what that's like because we do have peace here in this land. But if it's dreadful, if it's awful to have the looming threat of physical death ever near us, ever in front of us, how much worse must it be to know there is eternal judgment awaiting. To know there's spiritual death looming on the horizon. Is there anything in all the world more terrifying? No. But now the good news of the Gospel is that we need not fear. Because there is now no condemnation for us who are in Jesus Christ. There's no punishment left. There's no drop that we still have to take care of. He took it all. And thus, we need not live in fear, but in the joy of knowing our salvation in Jesus Christ. That said, it must also be said that this is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Congregation, on the basis of Scripture, I can say to every one of you, there is deliverance to be found in Jesus Christ. Whosoever believes in Him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. But for those who reject Him, that punishment is still looming. It's begun already in this life, and the fullness of it awaits. And the point is, we need Jesus Christ. Believe Him. Trust Him. Look to Him for salvation if you have not already. Because coming to church twice each Sunday is not going to save you. Being familiar with the truths of Scripture is not going to save you. And even having an orthodox understanding of the Reformed faith is not going to save you. There is only one who can save you. Salvation is found in no other name but the name 
Jesus Christ. So believe in Him. Repent of your sins. And look to Him by faith. Knowing that no one who takes refuge in Him will be condemned. So we've considered the glorious deliverance there is for us in Jesus Christ from the punishment we deserve for our sins. We could end here, but there is still one last thing that needs to be addressed. And that's the question, but if the punishment has been paid, if every last drop has been taken care of, why then do we still suffer? Why are there, why are there these temporal afflictions, the sickness, the pain, the reproach, the oppression? It's an important question because the reality is that all of us to one degree or another do indeed suffer such temporal afflictions. How are we to reconcile that with the truth we've just explained that Christ took the punishment we deserve? Well, for starters, we must say, state explicitly, there's no contradiction between these two things. There's no contradiction between the fact that Christ paid the debt that we owe and we still suffer temporal afflictions. And the key that unlocks the apparent contradiction is that when God sends such temporal afflictions upon His people who are righteous in Jesus Christ, He does so with an altogether different purpose, with an altogether different heart than when He sends those exact same things upon the wicked. For the wicked, God sends them in His destroying wrath and hatred. And those afflictions, those temporal afflictions, are a part of the punishment for their sin. A punishment that begins in this life and extends to the next. For His people, God sends them in His love. And He sends them as a part of how He is at work, of a part of His overall work to grow us. To conform us to the image of His Son. To cause us to grow from a spiritual point of view. And that's true regardless of whether God sends these temporal afflictions as a specific chastisement for sin or not. You see, there are two categories, if you will, of the earthly temporal afflictions. At times, God does send specific chastisements for specific sins that we have committed. We have an example of this in David. After his sin of adultery 
with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite for those specific sins, God sent a very specific chastisement that was due to the very sins that David had committed. So that the chastisement was that there was nothing but trouble in David's house and the trouble was linked to his sins. And that what happens later on? One of his sons rapes one of his daughters. And then another son, Absalom, kills that other son. And then there's the whole rebellion of Absalom and Absalom committing adultery with David's concubines. That was a chastisement for David's sins. But now that example is helpful in that it teaches us that when God is chastening us for particular sins, there will be a direct and obvious connection between the chastisement and the sin. That is, God does not, as a good father, God does not leave us wondering, was this discipline coming upon me because I committed this sin? Or maybe it was because of that sin over there. Why, why am I suffering this? God doesn't leave us to wonder that. He's a good father. So that when He chastens us and it's sent for a particular sin, it's so painstakingly obvious. We can never miss it. But even then, God sends that for our good out of love for us specifically to bring us to repentance, to help us to see the seriousness of that sin, to help us to see where impenitence in that sin is headed and where it leads. Sinus in his commentary called such specific chastisements sermons. Sermons to his God's people to bring us to repentance. Even when it is a specific chastisement for a specific sin, it's sent in love. That's one category. There's another category though. And that's all those that are not directly connected to some sin. And really, this is what's true of the vast majority of the afflictions and troubles that we face. It's not always linked to some sin. And there are two clear biblical examples that make this clear. You have in the Old Testament, Job. Job suffered. He endured many temporal afflictions. But not because of some sin. God wasn't punishing him and disciplining him because of this or that in Job's life. Because God Himself said at the very beginning, Job's a perfect, he's an upright man. You also have a New Testament example. The blind man in John chapter 9. The disciples assumed that his blindness was due to some sin. The only question they had, was it the sins of his parents or was it his own sin? And Jesus' answer was neither. It's not due to some particular sin, but that God might be glorified is why this blindness has come upon him. And what both of those examples show us is that unless there is a direct, obvious link between the sin and the discipline, then we may safely conclude, God is not angry at me for some particular sin in my life. This is 
an affliction to be sure. But there's not a particular lesson that I need to learn from it. That does not mean there's no connection to sin. Because the reality is that these things come upon us because we live in a sin-cursed world. These temporal afflictions are a part of the overall effects of the fall upon the whole of the creation and the whole of mankind. But that's different than saying it's because of some sin in your life that you're suffering in this way. Most often, that is not the case. But again, the main point is even in these general afflictions, God has a loving purpose so that even if it's not some particular sin we need to repent of, God would still have us to exercise our faith, our perseverance, our hope. He would have us loosen our grip on the things of this earth and look instead to the glory of heaven that awaits us. He would have us grow in conformity to His Son, Jesus Christ. So that always in all of our afflictions, we have this comfort. God is not seeking to destroy me. This is not a part of the punishment of sin that I must bear for eternity exactly because of the saving work of Christ. We still feel the bite. It still hurts. But the venom, the poison has been taken out of them. They're no longer deadly to us. Because Christ took that venom, that poison upon Himself. So that we're led to see once again that our comfort in life and death, body and soul, is that we are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for salvation in Jesus Christ and the deliverance from the punishment we otherwise deserve. Apply this Word to our hearts. Fill us with thankfulness. And help us to submit ourselves to whatever afflictions do come upon us, knowing that they are not sent in Thy just judgment, but in Thy love. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.